0: That's all I'm going to say about that. I want us to dive in now to Luke chapter 9. This is the last time we'll be in the ninth chapter of Luke, verses 46 through 62. And I invite you to hear these words from Luke. Luke says this, An argument arose among them concerning which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him. And on their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for his arrival, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another, he said, follow me. But he said, first, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us here in this time. We thank you, God, for this incredibly beautiful spring day. And so, Lord, we pray that you would enliven this word just as you have enlivened the earth once again. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. And amen. Well, since so many of you are so far back, I mean, I have to tell you, you have basically pinned yourself against the fence and then just kind of barely come forward. You may not be able to see my shirt well. I wore this today. Uh, this is a this is back to Easter, uh, where I talked about going from Yolo to Rolo, and not long after that, someone made this shirt for me. Uh, it says "Resurrected Ones Live On," and so I thought I would wear it today. Now, a part of the reason why I'm wearing it today is that. This has been in my office in a paper bag on my desk for about three weeks. I thought it was just trash from my children and yet it says something about me, the fact that I just left it literally there for like three weeks and never opened it up. I was about to throw it away this past week. When I opened it up, I saw that it was actually this shirt and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to wear it today because uh, for a couple of reasons, one, because it's nice and light and green. And secondly, because in many ways it talks uh, about what we're going to see in this particular passage today, which is this continued conflict between the kingdom of this world, in this case, it was, you only live once, you better suck the marrow out of life, versus um, um, the kingdom of God. And in this Easter case, it was this notion of the fact, you know what, that God has this, that we can kind of rest in that, that we know that there is more to this life than what we can hear and see and touch. And today in this scripture passage, we see this major pivot in the Gospel of Luke. And the reason why it's a major pivot is because Jesus is now beginning to walk toward Jerusalem. He is beginning to walk towards his suffering, his betrayal, and his death. And so for the next nine chapters, Jesus is going to both be walking toward Jerusalem and be teaching these disciples what it means to actually follow him what it means to be under the kingdom of God rather than being under the kingdom of this world. And so in many ways, this chapter, the end of this chapter is the kickoff to this sense of what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be made in the image of God and to live into that reality? And we see this clash from the very beginning. I want to remind you, uh, if you weren't here last week, what we talked about last week, it was the, the transfiguration. You had Peter, James and John who went up on the mountain and they were there and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah uh, showed up. And there's this great, amazing thing where, 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 where Jesus' face is changed or transformed and where uh, his clothes are shining bright like lightning. Uh, and all of a sudden this voice from on high says, this is my chosen. Uh, this is my son. You have this remarkable event. Um, and then right after that, they go back down. And as we said, they go back down to the disciples who had been left behind. We call these the second stringers. Peter, James, and John, first string, they make the cut. These, the rest of them do not. And they're up there and they're just messing everything up. They're trying to heal the son. They can't heal him. It's just great kind of tragedy, if you will, as they try to do this, but they don't, they forget to pray. And so we have this great kind of clash, if you will, between the first string disciples and the second string disciples. And when they come together, because this scene comes right after that, we hear that they are having an argument and what are they arguing over? Are they arguing, hey, you know what? Oh, you got to see Moses and Elijah. Tell us more about that experience. Are they talking about, well, next time we really need to pray more when we're trying to heal and how can we do that? How can we be of more service to those around us? We really wanna do that. Is that the argument that they're having? No, the argument that they're having, of course, is who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? I love these disciples and I love them because they are so absolutely normal like the rest of us. Of course, this is the argument they're having. You have the first string and they feel so good about being first string. And when you're first string, you don't wanna give that up. And then you have the second string. And when you're second string, what you want most of all is to be on the first string. And so of course, this is exactly what they are arguing about. Who is the greatest amongst us. And in the midst of that, we are told that Jesus reads their inner thoughts. Now here's what I love about this, which is that it makes it abundantly clear that Jesus did not overhear their argument. Rather, he had to understand their thoughts. What does that tell us? It tells us that they were not arguing loudly right in front of him. And why would they not have been arguing loudly right in front of him about this subject of which one of us is the greatest? Because they knew that this was not what they were supposed to be arguing about. They knew, right? And how many of us know that? We may know that, well, do we know this isn't really of Jesus? But I tell you what, it is so hard for us We want to know that we have purpose. We want to know that we have meaning. We want to know that we have significance. And in the kingdom of this world, the way in which you know if you are significant is not whether or not you are, quote, great. It is whether or not you are great-er. It is whether or not you are better. Our world works in this way, which is that it is a constant comparison. How do I know if I'm doing well? Well, I'm doing better than my neighbor. I'm getting more promotions than my coworker. I'm going on better vacations. My children are better. Did you notice that what they were arguing about is not who is great. They were arguing over who is greatest. How do I compare to the rest of you? This is the problem though with this world and getting our identity and purpose, which is that in first it delights us because we're doing well, but eventually it will always destroy you. At first it can enamor you, but it will always make no mistake. It will ultimately enchain you because you will live your life constantly judging and comparing and contrasting and there is no peace in that world. And so Jesus brings in this child and says, if you want to be the greatest, then be the least like this child. Well, quickly from that scene, then they move on. And, and John, we're told, actually, he says that right after this, John answers Jesus. He answers Jesus by saying, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. I find this intriguing that, that John is answering a question that Jesus didn't actually ask. Like when Jesus said to him, look, this is what you need to do. Be like this child. Jesus was not asking a question. But John felt like he needed to give some kind of answer. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone's embarrassed or feels nervous and so they just kind of begin to talk, but that's clearly it seems what John's doing. He's saying, well, I have to answer for my actions. All of a sudden now I don't look good. So how can I do this? And so he moves to distraction and he says, oh Jesus, you need to know that there is this guy over here who was trying to you know, cast out demons in your name, but don't worry, we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. Now, why would John want to do that at this moment? Well, I wanna suggest if again, we remember where John just had been, where was John right before this? I can't hear you when you're so far away. <laughs> he was on the mountain and he had this great spiritual mountaintop experience. Now listen, spiritual mountaintop experience are glorious, but there is also a dangerous underside to those which is that all of a sudden it is very easy to go from that mountaintop spiritual experience to thinking that you know exactly what Jesus wants and needs for everyone else in your life. It is very easy to go from one of these mountaintop spiritual experiences to all of a sudden beginning to think that I can control who is following Jesus and the exact best way to follow him. Whenever you have one of these experiences, maybe you know someone who's had this kind of experience or there are particular churches for whom you're like, oh my goodness, you can go to that church if you want. But if you really want to go to a church, you go to this church. I can remember, again, growing up in the Pentecostal world, I probably shared this, whenever I would go to another church that was not Pentecostal, I don't think my parents ever said this out loud, but they really didn't need to because when I went in there, what I knew is that this church was gonna be okay, but they didn't really have the Holy Ghost like we had. They didn't really know God. If they wanted to go to a real church, they would go to a Pentecostal church. They might've had the good news, but we had the better news. And it is easy for a particular experience that you have or a particular church to begin to cultivate a certain amount of hubris that says, we have the one way. It's actually kind of a, it's an ancient heresy called Gnosticism that says that we have the secret, we know the real way. And so here all of a sudden, John says, oh no, Jesus, don't even worry about it. We know the real way. And Jesus says, no, 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 you let them continue. The way of the kingdom of God is not a way of hubris and pride, it is a way of humility. Which then takes us to the third part of this particular scene where they go into Samaria. And you know, of course, this kind of massive uh, animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And all of a sudden, when they come in there, the Samaritans, we are told, they reject Jesus. They reject his disciples. And so what do James and John do? Well, again, remember James and John had just come back from the mountain, So they're still feeling very good about themselves. And so they say, you know what? You want us just to rain down fire from heaven and we will take them out. And we are told that Jesus rebukes them. He doesn't just say, ah, you shouldn't do that. No, you know what? Maybe tomorrow, but not today. No, he rebukes them. And it reminds me of this, earlier in November, we looked at Jesus and the three temptations. And perhaps you remember this, we talked about when the Satan was saying, hey, you can have all of these kingdoms if you'll bow down to me, that this was this incredible invitation to power. And if Jesus had said yes, what it meant is that then he wouldn't have to suffer. Then he wouldn't have to struggle. Then he wouldn't have to do all of those things, right? He could just all of a sudden be in power But Jesus chose instead the way of love. And Henry Nouwen, as we said back then, says that power can easily become the substitute over the hard task of love. Now here's what's important to remember about this. Jesus, rather than say, yes, let's just do power and just wipe them out. He just takes that rejection and he moves on. He chooses the hard task of love. When you go into Luke's next book in Acts, you'll see in the first chapter, when Jesus says, I want you to be witnesses. He says, I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the end, to the ends of the earth. And if you go to the eighth chapter of Acts, you will see that one of the places where the church most greatly flourished was in Samaria. In other words, when Jesus said, I'm not gonna just kind of smite you and I'm gonna go about the hard task of love. It is not efficient like power is. It is not instantaneous like power is. But the hard task of love says, I am not going to give up. And you have no idea how in the weeks or months or years to come, how our doing the hard task of love will at some point begin to bear fruit I always like to remind parents of this whenever their children, as they get older, oftentimes we can see them kind of going off and it can be very challenging. And I oftentimes want to remind them of things like this, of this sense of your call is just to go about the hard task of love. It's not to give up, it's not to get angry. It is simply to continue to love and love and love because much like Samaria, we have no idea how it is that God might turn this into something remarkable. Now, the question, of course is, and the thing that I always like to kind of help us to get to at some point is is that if we always have we're always kind of attempted by the kingdom of the world that will always bleed into our lives rather than the kingdom of God, what are those speed bumps that we can put in our in our life that helps to cultivate this? The speed bumps, the first time I kind of had this imagery you know, was because of the parking lot right over here those par- those speed bumps weren't always there, so people would just fly by, right uh, which was you know, always I thought was horrible unless it was me that was doing it. And so, but those speed bumps, right? They don't do, they don't stop you. All they do is they slow you down so that you begin to pay attention to what is going on around you. So how do we begin to pay attention so that we can know how the kingdom of this world is bleeding into the lives as followers of Jesus that we are called to live? Well, one of those ways, of course, is by what Jesus does with this child. I love what he does with this child. He doesn't just say, hey, you know what? There's a kid, just think about a kid in your head. He literally brings the child and puts him right here physically in front of him and says, I want you to look at this child, right? This child right here, There is an enormous amount of power in physically putting things in our sights to slow us down. Now, what this child does, of course, is this child is incredibly vulnerable. You know, in that time and place, uh, as many have pointed out, children were not nearly lifted up as they are now, right? There's been a huge pendulum shift, maybe too far, but that's uh, another sermon for another day. But, 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 but they were like completely like they were nothing. Now, why were they were like nothing? Well, because of the fact that everyone was starving. They could barely live. So for the first several years of a kid's life, all they were doing was taking food and they weren't doing anything to provide food. They were a massive liability to families for those first several years. This was a child, this was a person, as Jesus is trying to point out, who was not going to be able to thank us in any way that was going to be incredibly meaningful. They were not going to be able to thank us in a way that was going to give us something back. And see, we like to live in a world where we are caring and kind as long as we know that there might just be something in it for us. And so as I've been kind of thinking about this physical image of those who are vulnerable, I began to think, of course, about this food pantry right behind me. When we first started talking about doing some of these things in this food pantry, I will admit that I wasn't very keen on having it separate. I really wanted to have it as a part of the overall building. I, I didn't have bad motives, I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't too far away. I liked the fact that it's a part of our mission and I was thinking, well, that means it's a part of our building. That makes sure it's not just kind of, oh, well, they can have that space over here and we're over here. But there were some very wise people that kind of uh, you know talked to me and talked to others who were making these decisions and. And, and they ended up being, of course, incredibly right. And I've noticed that even just over the last few weeks, because over the last few weeks, as I'm out around in town, there'll be people who are not ZPCers, but who know that I'm the pastor here. And they'll say, oh, either like, what is that building? And what are you guys doing there? Or they'll say, oh, that food pantry, it's looking so great. And we are so glad that you guys are doing that. And I realize that by having this whole separate space here, it is this physical reminder to all, to everyone of the reality that there are vulnerable vulnerable who are here. But what I also want to suggest to you is that this is also incredibly important for us. You see, every single week we come into this place on a Sunday morning and we come in as a people who have been fed lies all week. We have been fed lies that the reason why we matter is because of the fact that we are better than others. We've gotten better grades than others. We've gotten more promotions than others. We've made more money than others. We have more friends than others. We've had better vacation than others. Our kids are going to better universities than others. And every time that we come up here into this parking lot, we should be reminded by this physical manifestation here of this reality that we do not we do not feed upon what the world feeds on. Instead, we feed upon who we are as followers of Jesus, first and foremost, and only. And so we have this remarkable food pantry here, which by the way, after this, we invite you to kind of, we'll move these red things to go in and look around. There'll be people who can kind of talk to you about this. And I want us just to realize that this is not just a gift for those who are hungry. This is a gift to all, to the faith of all of us. But now the second thing I want us to think about when it comes to those speed bumps in our lives, how is it that we can make sure that we are following Jesus and not just our own desires or the ways of the world is by making sure that we have someone in our lives who is just a remarkable disciple with whom we can really be mentored and learn about. You see, the truth is this, that there are those of us who are out there, there are those who are mature in their faith and I think they are absolutely critical to our own faith and understanding the ways of the world and how do we navigate the ways of the world. It takes someone oftentimes who is absolutely uh, solely and strongly focused that all of a sudden can affect the rest of us. Here's why I say this. In this passage that you have in verse 51, it's this remarkable verse that really is this transition where it says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face, to go to Jerusalem. That's this great line. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means that he was absolutely determined. He was going to move in this particular direction and no one and nothing was going to stop him. And because of that, everyone around him was going to be changed and everyone around him was going to have to face the question, are we going to keep going in the same direction we have been going or are we going to follow Jesus? You know, it may not surprise you to know that in my family uh, with four uh, um, kids from eight to 14, um, that our house oftentimes uh, has more clutter and more mess maybe than what we would like for it to have, And that, of course, is only accentuated by the fact that, as I've said before, we have this little dog, Sherman, who literally just searches for things to pick up and go leave in the middle of the room. I mean, he's just constantly, not only that, uh, you have me. And as I said, I'm someone who's quite comfortable with messes and clutters. You can go in my office. It just really does not affect me all that much. All that said, there is one person in my house for whom it does affect. And that is my wife, Megan. She can't stand messiness and clutter. Now, to her credit, during the week, especially when school's in session and she's working and I'm working, you know, it does. She allows it just to kind of pile up, but you can kind of just slowly see it rising. And by the time we get to either Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, you know that she has had enough. And all of a sudden, she sets her face toward cleaning the house. And at first, it oftentimes starts a little slowly. But then all of a sudden, she just kind of, it begins to pick up steam. And now the kids finally are beginning to see this, right? And so they're beginning to notice. And before you know it, she is just starting to clean and clean and clean. And it ramps up the pressure that we begin to feel. What we begin to realize is that we can't continue to do the same things that we had been doing all week. And before you know it, all of a sudden then, when she comes into the room, you know, you know we're not watching TV, you're not reading. You are at least looking like you are cleaning something. And we begin to do that. And then it doesn't take that much longer before then we start picking up you know, our own stuff because we know if we don't pick it up soon, her face has been set and these things will either go into the trash or the goodwill. And so we begin to pick things up. I'm convinced now, even Sherman, our dog, has begun to kind of pick up some of his toys and go put them in his cage uh, out of fear that they're going to be taken away. But now here's what's significant, that because of the fact that she has set her face towards this, Everything begins to change, not just the atmosphere, not just the environment, but what we do begins to change. We begin to change directions because of the fact that she has set her face in a remarkably different place. And you see, that's exactly what we see at the rest of this story, which is that Jesus has begun to set his face. And because of that, as he's going toward Jerusalem, all of a sudden, the disciples and those would-be disciples, when they meet him, they are immediately left with the question, will I continue in the same way I have been going or will I begin to go in the same direction as Jesus. It comes in rapid fire. I'm just going to go through it super quickly here. In rapid fire, you have the very first person who comes up and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, whatever, you don't even know what you're talking about. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, do you really want to follow me? Because it means that there will not be comfort. It means that there will be sacrifice, that there will be struggle. The next person comes in. Jesus says, follow me. He says, oh, I will as soon as I bury the, my father, my, my dead father. Now, this seems like a really good thing, of course. That Jesus says, No, let the dead bury the dead. And why does he say that? Because he knows that as soon as you say, Well, I will, but first, that right after you've gone to bury the dead, all of a sudden you're gonna come back and you're gonna be thinking on the way back to Jesus. Oh, well, you know what? I really, I really should probably just work a few more years, then I'll start following you, Jesus. I I really should, you know, make sure the kids are out of, of high school first and out of the busyness, and then I'll follow Jesus. Or I will, but I Want to have fun first, and then when I get married and settle down, then I'll follow Jesus. There will always be something else that wants to come first. And then, of course, at the very end, he says to this man, He says, Okay, I'll I'll follow you, but, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. And what Jesus says is, No, 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 no. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not useful for the kingdom of God. In other words, You're ready to follow after you say goodbye to your family. But the thing is this, that means you have this allegiance to your family and there will always be something else for you to have an allegiance to. You might have an allegiance to your politics or to your country or to materialism or to security or to control, and as soon as you have allegiance to anything but Jesus, you begin to look back. And when you begin to look back, you begin to weave and wind this way and that, and you never actually make it to Jerusalem. Every time that they meet Jesus, they are left with this question, are you going to follow me as a disciple, or, Are you going to be caught up by the comfort of this world, by by first doing something else or by allegiances that go this way and that? I wanna end this morning just with this one thing because I think it's important for us to remember this when it comes to the kingdom of God. And it's something that Tim Keller said. I wanted to bring up Tim Keller today because he passed away earlier or or on Friday, I believe it was of this week. And I just um, just wanna mention one thing he said about this. He says that when it comes to being a disciple, he says, first of all, there's not, you can be a disciple or you could just be a normal Christian. He says, there's not two groupings. A disciple, being a disciple, it is a real thing. It is sacrifice. It is, it is being able to say, I'm not gonna have allegiance this way and that. I'm gonna just follow you. There is this real change, this real movement, this real following But then he also says, but what's also important to see is that this is a process. All of this happens on the way to Jerusalem. There's this great sense of journey. So yes, we make this decision to follow Jesus, but it is a long journey. And there is much grace and forgiveness in the midst of that. And then finally Keller says this. Here's what's also important to note though. That when these disciples do this, Jesus said, I am going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. It isn't like, if you do these things, if you are the greatest disciple of all time, then I will go to Jerusalem and die for you. No, no, no. He says, you, I am going to Jerusalem. You follow me. I am going to go Jerusalem for you. I've already done this for you. The only question is this, are you going to follow me? What I love about these three examples there at the very end is that at no point are we ever told what they decide to do which is this beautiful invitation to each and every one of us are we going to follow Jesus to the cross with that said let us pray God you know there is a great cost in following you but we know lord that you have already gone to the cross and to Jerusalem for us. And for that, we give you praise. And we pray, Lord, that at this time and at this place, that you would help us to know what it means to be your disciple, what it means to follow you, what it means that you have already gone to that cross for us. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen and amen.